On this second part of the first episode, I'll be talking about the political and democratic systems that exist in Ghana. And I would also go ahead and put it in the context of um, corruption and how corruption has eaten into the very fabric of, of this wonderful society in Ghana. Uh, but before we, we, I start delving deep into it, I would take you into a little bit of brief history so that we can understand the context within which um, we'll be talking about politics and, and democracy in Ghana. It is very important for us to look at the, the, the history because it, it will help us understand and it will help us uh, um, see where Ghana came from in terms of um, uh, um, 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 politics and how colonialism also influenced the politics that exist in Ghana. Um, um, I, I will I will do well to stay away from um, a, a lot of the colonial influence because I think that um, most most often when people are talking about um, politics in Africa or or the African society, they they quickly jump into uh, um, the, the the demerits uh, of, of of colonialism of on on Africa. Yes, I admit the, the demerits uh, outweigh whichever merit that colonialism brought to Africa, um, but um, I would not make that the focus of, 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 of this topic right now. We may uh, do a whole episode on, on, on colonialism and what, what it, it, it took from Africa and, and, and the negative and how it has shaped the African society. But um, in this second part, we will just be focusing on Ghana and, and just a little bit of colonial, uh, colonialism in, within the Ghanaian context. Um, so, yeah. So, um, in, in terms of history, we'll, I would not go very far. I would only go as far as the 1940s, the, le the latter parts of the 1940s. That is um, from 1947 com uh, coming up until, until when Ghana gained independence and, and how um, it, it, the independence shaped the, the, the current political uh, atmosphere or political society we have in Ghana. So um, yeah, before 1947, the the system that existed in Ghana was basically controlled by by Ghana's colonial uh, colonial masters. That's the, uh, the uh, England, um, headed by the, the monarchy, the, the queen, at some point. And so uh, the monarchy would choose um, uh, someone to represent them in any colony that they have power in. So Ghana. At that time, was called the Gold Coast, and within the Gold Coast, um, there was um, the representative of the of the Queen or the monarchy called the Governor, and this Governor was supposed to enact and implement laws that were coming down from um, that were that were coming down from from his his own uh, um, leaders, uh, the monarchy, and the, the parliamentary system that exist that existed back then in England. And so um, it, the governor had so much power, and uh, that power, to keep that power, what the, government, the, the governor did was to just um, allow the kings and chiefs of, of, of Ghana within that period to just enjoy a little bit, a little bit of freedom and a little bit of power within their localities. So if you go into a, a typical Ghanaian locality before 1947, what, what you would find is the, the king or chief um, acts like an overlord, 
sort of and within the palaces they are able to hold their own cases their own court cases and all that stuff. their traditional court cases and all that stuff and whatever the king said uh, within that context was was held held um, some 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 weight and also um, these kings and chiefs were given some royalties were from from uh, sale of minerals and gold and other resources that were taken from those lands so it kept them pretty quiet within that within that period um, so um, before 1947 uh, during the world war the, Brit the, the British crown required uh, of its colonies to provide like strong young men who, who would go and fight on be on on behalf of, of Britain to go and fight in in the world war and Ghana being a colony of Britain was not was no exception uh, Ghana had to provide young men and before these men left the co the, the shores of Ghana they they were there was an agreement between these young men and the British crown that um, after the war um, after the war, they were going to be paid some um, um, stipends or what? Uh, yeah, stipends um, if they come back from the war. But um, when they came back from the war after 1945, the British government uh, reneged on its promise and they didn't pay these allowances or uh, or stipends, if you may call it, to the uh, to these to these men, to these gallant men who fought in the war. And so. Um, it, it it was it, it started brewing. There was a series of demonstrations here and there, and within that uh, that period in 1947, in 1947, a group of young men who had studied in uh, all around the world, most of them lawyers, came together, and they wanted to take advantage of the political atmosphere, the the, the demonstrations in 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 Gold Coast, in the Gold Coast at that in. In that period, um, they wanted to take advantage of that to create their own um, political struggle, uh, political party, if I may put it that way. And the name of this movement was called the United Gold Coast Convention. And this United Gold Coast Convention was formed with the aim of um, gradually, gradually convincing the British government to to sort of like release some sort of like um, administrative control over Ghana to them. And in this current day, these uh, founders of the United Gold Coast Convention are called uh, among the the big sis. And if, if if you've ever been to Ghana before, you've seen a Ghanaian currency, you would find um, the big sis representing on the Ghanaian currency. So these big six, um, they were all elites um, the, when they formed um, the United Gold Coast Convention. And so because of how elitist they were, it was very hard for them to go down to the people and explain um, their agenda to, to, to the people. Um, the people, I mean, the people who were agitating, who were fighting for for their stipends, their goal for fighting for their stipends was totally, totally different from this elitist group who formed the United Gold Coast, Gold Coast Convention because they were not interested in politics. They were not interested in any uh, political agenda to gain independence for Ghana. All they were interested in was that you promised us um, some allowances and we are back now. So you know what? We are hungry. Our families are hungry. So so pay, pay us our monies. And United Gold Coast Convention was all about politics and they wanted to gain independence and they wanted to be in power. They wanted to be in control. Um, and so there, there was there was a, a divide over there 
and to to rally the people to to them i mean to rally the people the local folks who were agitating to the side of the ugcc um, the leadership of the UGCC wanted they, 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 they wanted someone who could help them communicate uh, with the people, with, with the local folks who were agitating. And so they heard of a young man who was at that time in the United States of America studying. And his name was Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah at that time was uh, was was involved in the civil rights movements that was happening in the United States, and that is how come the leadership of the uh, of the UGCC heard of him. Um, he was very vibrant, very outspoken. He could pull a crowd, and so he was the perfect fit, perfect fit for the United Gold Coast Convention leadership um, as to what they wanted, and so they convinced Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. He went to the U.S., convinced Dr. Kamen Kumar to come and join them and be their general secretary. And the general secretary in this case was was the was sort of the one the mouth the mouth the mouthpiece was going on platforms, talking to people at rallies and all that stuff. And he he agreed and joined and joined the United Gold Coast Convention in uh, in in 19 came to Ghana around 1948, 1949, joined the United Gold Coast Convention. But um, something happened along the way. During this this period, because uh, the leadership of the UGCC were very, very elitist and didn't want to do all the dirty work, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, being as vibrant as he is and very, very vocal, didn't mind going down to the people and talking to the people and his civil rights uh, background made him made him very 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 um how do you call it um, um he, he he connected he connected with the people he if if i can describe dr Carmen krumah as um a martin luther king with 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 the or, the orative skill of um of barack obama so martin luther king if you know, if you've, if you've read a little bit about him, he was very vibrant, very, very vocal. He could pull a crowd just with a few words. He can charge a crowd. That is how vibrant he was. And then the skill of orating, Barack Obama, nobody beats him. Barack Obama can just pull pull the people together with just a few words. And and I, I, I admire him so much. Um, that That is... That is the skill that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah had. So um, he 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 was now getting known to the, the locals, the people. He was going to villages. He was going to the streets. He was going to the marketplaces. He was mounting platforms. So everybody started relate relating to to Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, not the UJCC. People did not really see. Um, um, the importance to, re- to, to to relate to the UJCC, but the message that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah brought, they saw the message as coming from Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and not coming from the UJCC. This went uh, to the, th- this became a problem to the leadership of the UJCC, and so they, they found themselves um, sort of like. <laughs> um, 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 observers in their own uh, political movement, because they felt threatened. They felt that Dr. Kwame was taking was taking over the, the the party, and 
that became a serious problem that uh, could not hold the group together. That wasn't the only problem. One biggest fundamental problem within the rift between uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and the UGCC leadership was that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's idea of 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 democracy wasn't just political democracy. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah looked at democracy in totality. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah looked at democracy from a social standpoint, political standpoint. And so he, he, he believed that if you're going to gain democracy, you need to do it in, in, in a complete way, not just in a political way. Meanwhile, the UGCC was looking at democracy in a political way. They wanted political democracy. They wanted to be part of the administrative process, not gain total independence and becoming a republic. And that was one very huge fundamental difference between Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and the UGCC. And so at a point, they couldn't uh, relate anymore, and Dr. Kwame Nkrumah went his own way, and then the UGCC went its own way. At that point, that meant that the UGCC at the score was was crumbling because they didn't have um, that orator, that vibrant young person to communicate their message anymore. Now that person is Dr. Kwame Kumar. Dr. Kwame Kumar, on the other hand, used the UGCC platform to build himself, and he became well-known to the people. And so after leaving the UGCC, Dr. Kwame Kumar went to form an, uh, his own political party called the CPP, the Convention People's Party. And this Convention People's Party definitely was... Um, was had their ideology of uh, self-government now, social democracy, total democracy, and the, uh, while the UGCC was saying that, oh, you know what, we can gain uh, democracy from political democracy and eventually self-government um, gradually. We should do it gradually. But Dr. Kuma, um Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's civil rights background was more vibrant. He was like, we need democracy right now. We need these folks out. We can manage our own affairs. And that was a rift. And within this rift, there also lied the British government, the British crown. And so, naturally, the one that the British crown will gravitate towards will be the UJCC, who were not forceful enough, who were... Uh, about, oh, you know what, just let us have a bite. Um, and then gradually you can feed us until a point where, you you know, we can feed ourselves, you know. So, and you can still have some control whilst we, we figure out how to feed ourselves. And so um, the British government was more um, gravitating towards the UGCC, what the UGCC stand for, stood for. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, on the other hand, was well, on the other hand was labeled as a rabble rouser. At some point, a terrorist. He was put in jail. He was arrested many times. His people were arrested many times. He formed a lot of rebel uh, underground rebel movements, caused problems on the streets and all that stuff. And eventually, in 1957, in no, in 1956, yeah. The British government gave in, and there was an election. And in that election, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah stood 
for the CPP, and then he won. Um, I, I, at this point, I'll make a caveat that I am not giving you a complete, complete total history of what what happened. I'm just summarizing. I'm just moving through um, through every single. Um, some parts i'm moving through quickly some parts because there's there's a lot to cover um I, I again i would i would repeat that if you really want to know about about these things that i'm talking about um <laughs> google is a, is a very very good friend you can you can you can go and then look up the ugcc the cpp dr Carmen Kroma, and and all of that and there is enormous enormous history that you can learn ghana has got some some very very pretty 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 interesting history in, in their past and so yeah just go to google and type the united gold coast convention and then you'll find a lot of history there you can also uh, uh, research the the cpp the convention people's party and you you'll find a lot of history there and so after the elections dr carmen Krumah became the first prime minister of ghana that was that was not what dr carmen Krumah was looking for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah was looking for self-government now. But what that election meant, that election meant was that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah became the prime minister and so he was still answerable to the British crown. Um, so the government wasn't just about Ghanaians. It was uh, Ghanaians uh, ruling themselves at the behest of the Queen of England at that time. And Dr. Kwame Nkrumah saw that, no, this is not the goal. The goal is to gain total independence, become a self-government with no British intervention, no British uh, communication, no nothing. We wanted our own flag. We wanted our own national anthem. And that is what Dr. Kwame Nkrumah stood for. And so even after he became prime minister, the struggle was still on to become a republic. And this was um rubbing against some some very uh, the, you know tough people you're, you're going after the queen and you're going after the very the very uh system that the 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 british crown is trying to protect and 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 if you if if you know a little bit about about the the british crown within that period there was a lot of um agitation even in britain to to abandon this colonialism um, um, agenda that they were pursuing, to abandon all of its colonies, and so uh, Ghana, being one of its main colonies, was was uh, it, them losing out on Ghana to uh, within that period was was very hard on them. So the British Crown was playing hard to get. They were playing hard. They, they didn't want to give in. But unfortunately for Dr. Kwame Kumar also. There was also another element that was fighting against him, against his struggle. And it was um, the United Gold Coast Convention and its allies. Because they were more favorable to the British Crown. And so they were working with the British Crown to thwart Dr. Kwame Kuma and his elements' efforts on gaining the total independence that Dr. Kwame Kuma and his folks were fighting for. This went on uh, for a while. Kwame Kuma came under a series of attacks. He he even got um, a bomb um, stashed in a in, in a flower bouquet delivered to him by a little girl. Fortunately for him, um, he he didn't die. He survived that 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 bomb attack. There were a couple there were a couple of attacks on Dr. Kwame Kuma just to eliminate him because of what he stood for. 
another very important thing that okay i would go to that important thing later on i have to state this first so after dr kwame Nkrumah uh survived all of these finally finally the the british crown gave in and ghana became um it's ghana became a republic and now dr kwame Nkrumah uh became the first president of of of, of ghana uh, that that is a summary of of it after Dr. Kwame Nkrumah became president, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's first mistake that he did in power was that even though, yes, to some people, the argument is that what he did was, was, was good for Ghana at that moment. And I'm going to tell you what he did. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, after he became president, decided that because of the political nature, because of how young Ghana is in terms of political democracy he was going to limit ghana's uh, political system to just a one-party system and so all all other parties were banned and it was only the cpp with his his political party that was the the political party that existed that was the first mistake some people argue that oh it it was in the interest of ghana because if he had opened it up for a lot more political parties to run against him there would have been a lot of instability within that young democratic system that uh, we had just started forging and so um in my in my view that was um, a mistake he should have opened up he should have allowed other people opposition he should have allowed opposition voices he should have allowed people people the free um avenue an open avenue to 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 express their dissent but he didn't that was one major thing that dr kwame Kumar did uh, that caused his downfall the other thing that caused his downfall was that in the early stages of dr kwame Kumar's, um dr kwame Kumar's freedom fight dr kwame Kumar saw the freedom fight and the gains that ghana had made and the political democracy and the gains that ghana had made he saw it as incomplete because from from his civil rights background he he wanted political democracy for the entire african population because at that time almost the entire african continent continent was being colonized and when ghana became the first country within the sub-saharan the sub-saharan region to gain political independence from its colonial colonial masters decided that he was going to extend that very that wave that has begun in ghana into other quality other african countries actually it, it he was invited into it and so people like patrice lumumba and the rest they took inspiration from what dr kwame Nkrumah did for um, in ghana um, in that in that in that latter years and in doing that, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah declared something very important. Some, something important. Uh, I, I'll try to paraphrase it a little bit. He said something to this effect that Ghana's independence is meaningless until it leads to the total liberation of the African continent. And in saying that, he went on to declare that we wanted a united Africa and a united states of Africa immediately you declare that you have made yourself a public 
enemy number uno to to these uh, um, uh, colonizers and 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 rulers who were who were benefiting from 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 Ghana and to a large extent African resources because their societies are being supported by the resources that come from Africa and and, and Ghana yeah, from timber from gold from diamond from cocoa to cotton to coffee to what have you you can keep naming them these societies i mean europe the west americas they were surviving off these resources and so you declaring that you wanted a united africa united states of africa means that you want control over something that they have controlled for hundreds of years and so once you control that it means that it dries out for their society and you put a target on your back immediately dr kwame kumar did this that was exactly what happened and so there's a rumor i mean i'm studying in ghana and studying these histories uh we 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 studied we we just we, we studied the surface surface history but the rumors that came out was that um there were elements in ghana especially from the opposition parties that were that that did not officially exist but existed because Tito Kramikuma had jailed had put most of these opposition leaders in in prison and and definitely he couldn't get all of them so the ones who were not in prison were collaborating with the CIA and then some elements even within his own government were also collaborating with the CIA to get Dr. Kramikuma out and so um it was successful Dr. Kumar's reign only lasted about, I think, six, seven years. I, I think so. Um, um, yeah, I think so. We can look it up. Um, but he, he didn't last long. Dr. Kumar didn't last long. Um, he, he was he, he traveled. Dr. Kumar traveled to um, Guinea uh, for a state visit, and he heard that he has been overthrown. As simple as that. He was overthrown by a couple of military military generals and captains who came together with these political elements and, and caused a coup d'etat and and overthrew Kwame Nkrumah. So Kwame Nkrumah's uh, Kwame Nkrumah did never return to Ghana again after this political overthrow. And before he was overthrown, Kwame Nkrumah actually started a lot of projects in Ghana. So most of the major projects that still that Ghana still that, that forms the backbone of Ghana um, today were started by Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, and some of them, most of them, were actually completed by him. And before he was overthrown, um, contracts that he signed, projects that he started, um, went on to 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 become Ghana's backbone in terms of uh, industrial development and all of that and economic development. I can I can take. Uh, just a few. One big example is the Yakosombo Dam. Yakosombo Hydro Dam is is one of the biggest projects that Dr. Kwame Nkrumah started, and um, when he finished that, it it supplied um, it, the main the main goal for start for 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 developing the Yakosombo Dam was to supply power to to uh, the Volta Aluminium uh, uh, Company. The Volta Aluminium Company was one of the biggest smelting companies of aluminium in the West African region when it was completed. 
and it was the 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 um, Akosombo Dam was supposed to su- supply hyd- hydroelectric power to your Volta Aluminium Company. But in, in doing that, it also had excess excess power that is supplied to the citizenry. And that Akosombo Dam formed the basis of Ghana's energy, Ghana's uh, electric energy up to today. Until um, the, there were a couple of power, uh, wasn't it, capacity, um, uh, 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 not being enough um, in around, I think it started around the, ni- the, uh, the early 1980s and then now a lot of thermal power has been added to it. Up until then, up until just recently, uh, I think 20, 2014, most of Ghana's power came from Akosombo Dam. So one is the, the Akosombo Dam is one of the major projects that Dr. Kevin Kumar started. And another major, major, major problem that uh, <laughs> sorry, not a problem. Major projects that Dr. Karen Kumar started was the Tema Motorway. If you ask any Ghanaian, the Tema Motorway is 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 one of the major highways in Ghana. If you take Tema Motorway out, you you disconnect the country, uh, you, you disconnect m- most parts of the country, and most of Ghana's uh, uh, resources ply that route because it needs to get to the harbors for shipping and the Tamamoto way as as a direct linkage between where these resources are coming from and 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 the harbors where the ships are to, to, to ship these 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 resources like cocoa and, and and gold and what have you and so Dr. Kwame was a visionary he was a visionary he wanted to place Ghana above above uh, he wanted to play not 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 above. Sorry, he wanted to place Ghana as the the leader, the leader in economic economic development and and industrial development in Africa. That was what Dr. Kwame Nkrumah wanted to place Africa uh, Ghana. But unfortunately, he was overthrown before he could complete um, a lot of these projects that that he had he had started. Some he had completed, and some of them he did he couldn't even start them. He they were just on paper. So um, at this point, um, every single plan, every, every single gain that Dr. Kamakuma's uh, uh, political system that he was trying to introduce into Ghana, every single gain that it had made came to a halt because a new element has been had been introduced, a coup d'état, and when a coup d'état happens in any country, it means that. The, the old system that existed gets thrown out and then a new one is introduced. Unfortunately, in the case of a coup d'etat, the people who come in, most of them are not professionals. Most of these guys were just um, army folks who knew nothing about economic management and only knew get the gun. And so when they take power, what happens is that they, because they don't have any sort of uh, economic knowledge or any sort of uh, knowledge at all, most of them don't have any knowledge at all, they end up running down the system completely. And so that was the, the case of Ghana. When these uh, military folks overthrew Kwame Nkrumah's government and Kwame Nkrumah ended up staying in, in Guinea and, and, and never returning to Ghana until he passed, the political system in Ghana just froze. And then started going at, uh, downhill. Started going downhill. Um, 
up until the 1970s when another coup d'etat happened. The first coup d'etat happened in the 1960s. The second coup d'etat happened in the 1970s. And at that time, the Ghanaian political system barely existed. After the second coup d'etat, there, uh, there was an attempt to build it back up. And so there was um, uh, an election held, a civilian government took over, and then that civilian government only lasted about, I think, about three years. And it was overthrown by uh, Dr. Buzia's government. After Dr. Puzia's government was overthrown, another military government came in. So it means that there's been another disruption in the, Ghan in the Ghanaian political system. Um, the, the, the economic system, the economic environment that existed at that time is not something that we... <laughs> we okay, it, it, is a, it is an interesting topic for people who want to really use, want to do a deep research on Ghana and its economic... Um, development and its economic system and 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 what and the history behind it and all of that it is an interesting topic for them but for me i think that uh, um, it, it 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 is something that we must go into but because of how packed it is um it would we wouldn't have enough time right now and and to be honest i don't have the rep the the the, the right information in front of me all the information in front of me in terms of um, the Ghanaian economic system to go into that. But it is something that is worth, is worth researching and reading um, if, if, if you have time, uh, if you have time to do that. But um, Dr. Dr. Buzia's government also did some good. They did some good, but on, uh, unfortunately, they didn't have enough time. The Buzia's government did not have enough time to actually implement all of its all of its plans because it was able to put in place some um, railway construction, some major road networks, um, and and uh, the the current the current Ghanaian economic system that exists um, actually came out of Dr. Buzia's. Um, vision, Dr. Buzia's vision for, 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 for Ghana in terms of economic development, economic and industrial development. And so Dr. Buzia also did something within the, the, the three years that he had. After Dr. Buzia, another coup d'etat happened. I, I don't want to mention these military guys, these military guys who conducted these coup d'etat's names because um, we don't want to give them any honor because um, they, they thought that they were, they were doing good for 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 the country but it was just it was just selfish it was just selfish somebody sitting somewhere and thinking that oh a democratically elected government is not doing enough so i would take a gun and go and then shoot and kill and take take power for myself come on i'm not going to honor such such people yes i know they have families but but they they don't have a, a good place they, these these guys don't have a good place in 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 history, so we shouldn't we shouldn't give them that honor. Um. So Dr. Co uh, Dr. Buzia's government was overthrown. After Dr. Buzia's government was overthrown, um, another coup d'état happened, and this coup d'état that happened was in the 1970s. In 1979, a young um, military officer called Jerry John Rollins. Uh, very vibrant young man, very very vibrant young man at that time. Um, was was part of a group of other officers 
I mean low-level officers who decided that the military government that existed at that time was was just destroying Ghana, pulling Ghana down and down and down. So they decided to call to to, to have a coup d'état. It wasn't just the military folks. There were other people in the background, other civilian folks who were in the background also pushing for the coup d'état. But uh, yeah, but the military folks were were the ones who were the faces of this military. Um, the, this this 1979 coup d'état was was quite was quite interesting. It has a very interesting place in history in Ghana's history because it, unlike other coup d'états, this coup d'état was actually supported by the citizenry. The citizenry was actually clamoring for it because they had grown tired of the military and 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 what it represented and and how. It became like a government of family, friends, and all that you know, and and the the rest of the country was left in poverty, like grave poverty, at a time. And so, uh, the citizenry was in support of this coup d'état. And so, when Jerry John Rawlings and his and his uh, compatriots and his people uh, conducted this coup d'état, it, it was received with joy. It was received with joy in 1979. After 1917, okay, before I go to the period after 1917, this coup d'etat was labeled as the coup to end all coups in Ghana. So after this coup, there shouldn't have been any coup d'etat. That was how Ghanaians saw the 1979 coup. But after 1979 coup, Rollins and his, and his guys held an election, and a democratically elected government came in. That was Dr. Hilary Mann's government. Dr. Hila Liman won the presidency and became president of Ghana. And he he was he was president of Ghana for just two years. And then Dr. Uh, <laughs> he's not doctor, he's not a doctor. Jerry John Rollins, flight lieutenant Jerry John Rollins and his guys again committed another coup, conducted another coup. And this coup was was rejected heavily by by almost everyone because the people in Ghana did not see the reason for their coup, for the nineteen for nineteen eighty two coup d'état that happened in Ghana. There was no justification. There was no reason why Rollins and his goons to conduct another coup d'état in nineteen eighty two. But the reason that was given by Rollins and his goons was that um, there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of corruption under Dr. Hilary Mann, who had only taken government for just two years. Um, he has taken over from a corrupt system that has been developed by these military folks. And he has just come in, just formed a government, barely just two years. He hasn't even started working yet. And yet, Rawlings and his goons uh, saw justification to go and commit another coup. And so this coup was actually rejected heavily by, by the citizenry. Rollins stayed in power um, for eight years after that, um, and I think that Rollins, in 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 his own in his own right, also did something for Ghana within that years. Because Rollins, if 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 you don't know anything about Rollins, you can just go in and um, I again again <laughs> Google Google Google. What are we going to do without you? But Google has um, 
some very good history. Uh, if you go and type Jerry John Rollins, you, you would read a lot about him and what he did for Ghana. Rollins is a very principled man, very, very disciplined, and he knew he knew and knows where he wanted to take Ghana, um, even though he was a military leader and his coup d'etat wasn't accepted. I think that he did his best within that period when he was a military military ruler in Ghana. Um, from the 19... Um, 1983, 80, uh, coming down, coming up, sorry. He did, he did his best. And so Rollins ruled Ghana for eight years. And then in 1992, in 1992, Rollins decided that he wanted to return Ghana back to civilian rule. And so that was that was that became a very very good turning point in Ghana's history, Ghana's political, Ghana's current political and democratic history. And so, when Rollins decided that he wanted to return Ghana back into into civilian rule, um, he 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 sat he he called up a couple of guys, professional guys, who some of them in his government, some of them. Who were, were lecturers in universities to come together and then see how best we can they can fashion out a roadmap for Ghana to return back to civilian rule, and they did that, and um, Rollins formed a political party. No, Rollins and his people were known as the PNDC. At, before he decided to return to political, uh, yeah, to return to civilian rule, and so. His, his his political party, the PNDC, was seen as a representat a representation of what a military government was. And so if we were to move back into civilian civilian rule, the PNDC cannot move back into civilian rule in its current form. Mm -hmm. And so Rollins political party decided to rebrand itself as a civilian party and so it abandoned the name PNDC and took up the name the NDC. And Rollins also did something quite interesting at this stage. To fashion out a civilian government, Ghana needed a constitution, a new constitution. And this constitution, to, to come up with this constitution, again, he called up um, some leading folks within his party and then also leading folks within the Ghanaian system itself, um, lecturers and what have you, and lawyers and, and what have you, to sit down and then come up with a constitution. And this constitution that came up was very important because during the formation of this constitution, um, the 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 government at that time extended a hand to the, the opposition parties that were coming up and the opposition that parties that were coming up included a political party called the UNP the UNP the UNP uh, the UP the UP tradition is called the UP sorry sorry not the UNP the UP the UP tradition are the antecedents of or the descendants of the United Gold Coast Convention. If you can remember, in Ghana's early political history, there was UGCC, the United Gold Coast Convention. And after Dr. Kwame Nkrumah became um, president, he banned these political parties. 
dissolved some of them. And so the UGCC did not exist in its, in its past form. And the antecedents from that political party came up and formed the UP party and meshed with other political, small political parties that, that, that existed. Some of them existed in the, in the northern part of Ghana. Some of them existed in, in the southern parts. And some of them existed in the central parts of Ghana. And so these small, small political parties came together to form what you currently have in Ghana called the NPP, the National the new patriotic party the new patriotic party and so um in this in this period a hand was extended to the new patriotic party leadership to come so that they sit together and then fashion out um a constitution that would lead ghana into a civilian um civilian government but they refused this is history this is not me saying it History says that this political party refused on the basis that um, the, the people that were being constituted to, to, to write this constitution were not elitist enough. They were not um, uh, all lawyers, but they came from all walks of life. They came from, from the marketplaces, the farms, the, the schools, doctors. They came from all walks of life. And this political party refused to sit with these folks because they, they didn't consider them elitist enough. They didn't consider them as lawyers. And if you can remember, they are they are they are founders. They are they are they are they are they are forefathers, if I should say they are grandfathers, that is the leadership of the UGCC, also had that mindset. The mindset that, oh, um, we are too elitist to go down to the people and talk to them and organize them. That was the same mindset that the MPP had during the form, during the compilation or the creation of the 1992 constitution. And so the NDC went ahead with these farmers and teachers and lawyers took all their their views together and came up with that important document that has formed the basis of Ghana's current democratic system and Ghana's uh, political system today, the 1992 constitution. And based on the 1992 constitution, an election was conducted. In 1992, Jerry John Rawlings, who was a military, who was the military leader in the PNDC era before the constitution was formed, now became a presidential candidate on the ticket of the NDC, the National Democratic Congress. At this point, um, in, in this era, I think, um, yeah, in this era, uh, Doctor, um, not not Doctor, I I I I don't know why I keep trying to assign a doctor to uh, Rawlings, fl flight lieutenant Jerry John Rawlings. He's not a doctor. He was an Air Force captain. He was a captain within the Air Force. Um, and so flight lieutenant Rawlings stood on the ticket of the NDC against some other political parties and the NPP. And then he won and became Ghana's first president under the Fourth Republic. There was the first republic, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's republic, the second republic, that is Dr. Bouzier's republic, the third republic, that is Dr. Hilary Mann's republic, and then now we have a new, con when after the 1992 constitution was constituted, that became the fourth republic, 
and 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 flight lieutenant George John Rawlings became the first president under that fourth republic. And so, um, up until this point, now this is where, um, no, not this point. So, in all of this history, I haven't mentioned a very important thing, and that important thing I haven't mentioned is corruption. So, um, the debate as to when corruption started rearing its head in Ghana's political history, um, the debate is there. People are debating as to when it started, but to me, it is quite clear when it when it, when when corruption reared its head in the in in the political system that Ghana had fashioned for itself. Corruption started rearing its its head in the First Republic. Because, in my opinion, immediately Dr. Karim Krumah made the decision and the choice that it was going to limit Ghana's political system to just a one-party system, that was when uh, corruption was introduced. Because if you do that, then it means that there are no checks and balances. Nobody is there to check you. The opposition is always there to check you and to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And so once you silence an opposition, once you keep an opposition out of government, it means that you are free to do whatever you want. And that is when corruption becomes part of that institution. That is when corruption begins to rear its head. And so, again, in my opinion, that was when corruption was introduced into Ghana's young political democratic system. And then it further declined and corruption further took a grip when Dr. Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown. Now, like I said before, once a military government overthrows a government and it takes over, what happens is that that military government arrests, some of them sometimes detain, sometimes execute, kill. Uh, the previous government, the previous leadership of that government. And so there isn't anything like an institutional memory that exists for this military government to to actually um, continue. They just wipe the slate and then try to do their own thing. And in doing that, what happens is that this military government forms a whole cabal within itself to rule. And that is a fertile ground for corruption because they become kings on their own. Nobody can question them. There is no there is no uh, constitution to rule. There is no courts. There is nothing. They are, they are their own court system. They are on their own judges. They are their own. They're just kings. And so they they have the option of dipping their hands into the into the coffers anytime they want. And that's was a very dangerous period for Ghana. And, and within that period, that was when corruption um, became reinforced after Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's First Republic. Now, if we count the number of times coup d'etat happened, and the way I have described a coup d'etat um, on, on, on this, on, in this discussion, then it means that Ghana went down how many times? It, Ghana has gone down so many times to a point where it 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 
to, to a point where it was inconceivable how you can actually uproot this corruption because the corruption has eaten into into the fabric of the Ghanaian leadership. It has eaten into the fabric of the leadership of Ghana to the point where now it has spilled over into into the Ghanaian society itself. It spilled over into how people relate to themselves. It spilled over to how day-to-day -day communications happen. It spilled over to even um, within um, our smaller communities how uh, things are conducted. That is how come corruption spilled over into the very fabric of Ghanaian life. We had an opportunity in 1979 because there was an epiphany. The people themselves realized that we didn't want this anymore because it, it has become, the system has become so corrupt, the leadership has become so corrupt, and so we wanted change. So in 1979, when the people supported, when the Ghanaian people, the Ghanaian public supported Dr. Kwame, supported Flight Lieutenant Jerry John Rawlings on the coup that was supposed to end all coup d'etats, that should have been the point where Ghana took the right turn. But unfortunately, unfortunately, that did not last. We took another downturn again in another coup d'etat. And that reinforced corruption. Not that Rollins himself is corrupt. I believe strongly Strongly, after reading about Rollins, I believe strongly that Rollins is a very principled man. And even if there has been corruption in his own circle, it might have happened on his blind side. Yes, he will take he will take ultimate responsibility for corruption happening under him. But I don't I don't believe for a second that Rollins is a corrupt leader. But the people in his government, the people that he delegated to 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 run agencies, to run institutions on his behalf, were corrupt. And they reinforced corruption between 1984-83, coming all the way to 1992, when a new constitution was was constituted and 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 a new republic came came to be. And so before, 19, before the 1992 constitution, you can, you can imagine how rotten the Ghanaian political system and the Ghanaian democratic system has become. We, all we did was that we migrated every single thing that, all the bad from the old system into the new republic, the fourth republic that was constituted. And ever since then, you can imagine what deterioration has happened. Because now, um, in democracy in itself is a very, very, very good thing. I, I believe in democracy. I believe that I believe that people should be given the right to choose. People should be given the, the, the space and opportunity to say what they want within a very um, respectable uh, um, um, system within respect so you can say whatever you want but you must respect your neighbor you can you can do whatever you want but you must respect um your 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 your, your neighbor you must respect other people i believe in that that sort of democracy i believe that freedom of speech 
should should be granted to every single person, everybody. But I also believe that there should be some uh, responsible speech. There should be some responsible freedom of speech practice. But in a democracy too, there is the potential of highlighting a lot of bad. There's a there's there's a potential of bad becoming very bad and bad getting out of control in a democracy. And in Ghana's case, what happened was that because we we just we, we, we just migrated all the bad and ills of corruption from uh, the military leadership that existed before the Fourth Republic into the Fourth Republic. There were the, it, it became very difficult for democracy to check this bad. This bad is corruption. And what happens is that after the first elections in 1992, it became a winner-takes-all system. And so when a political party stands for, for, for a political contest, let's say a presidential uh, contest, and wins... What happens is that that political party becomes rulers. The president becomes untouchable. His ministers become untouchable. And because there are a lot of ministries and a lot of ministers, sometimes the president does not have, um, cannot really uh, supervise every single minister and what is happening. So contracts and all have you and what have you. Are, are dubiously given to people and money is shared and people are using Ghana's coffers as if it is their own wallet. I mean, you just need to 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 go to Ghana and take your time and then study the Ghanaian system and you would realize that the day-to-day life of a Ghanaian would reflect what the, the political leadership is like. For example, in Ghana, if you should go to Ghana and you are you are a Ghanaian, okay, let's just say you're not a Ghanaian, and you go to Ghana, you go to a hospital to get health care. The system is so corrupt that it is possible for you to give and to, to bribe a nurse to, to make you skip the line. That is how corrupt the system is. When you get to Ghana, the airports, the first thing you meet is corruption. Because you will find airport employees coming to you, asking you for money, and some of them actually extorting money from you. People who are being paid on government, who are put on government payroll, who are being paid. It's not like the, the, the pay that these folks receive, the monthly payments that these folks receive is small. It's not that it is meager. These folks are paid well, but you find an immigration official in Ghana trying to extort money from you. It has happened to me on a number of occasions. Whenever I get to the Ghanaian airport, it is sad to to highlight this, but it is real, so we need to highlight it. When you go to the Ghanaian airport, um, when you go to a um, um, the Ghanaian, the Ghana passport office, right? And this happened to me. <laughs> when you go there and you want a Ghanaian passport, the, the passport is a public document, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't be a hustle to get a Ghanaian passport if you are a Ghanaian and legally, it, it, you, 
like you have the right to get the Ghanaian passport. You should it shouldn't be be, be a long process. Right? It's like in any other country in America, if you want if you're if you're an American and you're born if you're an American, you're born American, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be difficult for you to get an American passport. You know, you you shouldn't have to go through hoops to get an American passport. The system should should be willing to give you an American passport. So far as you're 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 an American and you're you're born American. In Ghana is not is it's not the same. Even though you're Ghanaian, you have proof that you're Ghanaian. You still have to go through hoops. Sometimes you need to bribe people to get a passport, a public document. To get a public document, you need to bribe passport officials for them to expedite your passport for you. Other than that, it will take you months. It will take you months. Sometimes it will take you close to a year just to get your passport back because you're unwilling to engage in corruption, someone will push your passport to the back of the line and let it sit there because you are you you refuse to engage in corruption. And so, if you want your passport, you must engage in corruption. You must bribe that official to give you your passport. Another example is that in Ghana, <laughs> even though the law the law is such that you must you need an ID card to get a SIM card, you can actually bribe your way to get a SIM card without using your own official ID card. That is how corrupt the system is. I'm not blaming the Ghanaian people for the corruption that happens in Ghana every single day. I'm only highlighting how the system has it's, it has become so corrupt and and it it's 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 become a day-to-day activity it's become a part and parcel of the people and need and needs a radical radical transformation to get the system right i i'm i'm hoping for the day when um i will go to ghana and i require a service and i don't have to go through go through some uh, we call it you have to batter someone's hand i don't i don't have to put some money into anybody's hands just to get as a public service um when when we talk about corruption in ghana right we we shouldn't just limit ourselves to to the social system that exists in ghana when i say social systems i i mean the everyday life, like you go into the hospital or go into the marketplace or go into the passport office or what have you to, to get a service and, and, and the, the corruption that exists in those institutions or those places. We should also broaden the topic of corruption within the Ghanaian context to the political systems that exist in Ghana. I don't for a minute believe that there has been any election in Ghana without any sort of political or some underground underhand dealing or someone influencing the results that come out i don't for once believe that that has never happened all the political parties that has that have ever ruled in ghana within the fourth republic have some um um bad things to do some corrupt things to do in the background just to win political power 
for instance they have a way of stuffing ballot boxes they have a way of generating people that are that that are not existent they have a way of changing figures for themselves when 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 uh, there there is vote counting and all that stuff so it it exists it is there they know it we know it i mean if if you are if you have been in ghana and you have been in, you 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 have been interested in the political systems and you have been involved in one way or the other you know that these things exist the only reason why people will deny this is because um in in every corrupt society what happens is that there are also um, ostriches you know to say the least who bury their heads under the sand and pretend that the problem is not there but it is there so for us to deal with to to to, to solve corruption the the the, the the problem of corruption within the Ghanaian society. First of all, leaders must admit that they are corrupt, and corruption exists. And the people must ex also, the people of Ghana must also admit that they are corrupt, and corruption exists. Corruption has eaten even into into our culture. Corruption has eaten into our culture, and so we must first admit that the, it, it, it it does exist, and then we we can then find a solution to it. I mean. In recent years, right, there has been um, very uh, impressive um, um, investigative journalism work done done in Ghana by by journalists like Ar uh, Anas Aremeya Anas and the likes. They've done so much, but after they have done this work, what 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 happens to all these pieces, all these? great investigative work that they have done to, to to highlight corruption in in Ghana what happens is that it becomes news for just about a week or two and then after that we will all just push it under the carpet and pretend as if it doesn't exist recently there was one piece that he did concerning um, uh, Galamse if you don't know what Galamse is in Ghana, in the in Ghana Galamse is uh, is 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 just um, illegal mining, illegal small scale mining, and so uh, a group of people just gather themselves, go into some forest area somewhere, and then use all these um, um, tools and equipments, and sometimes use illegal illegal chemicals like cyanide and the rest, and then they poison the waters, muddy muddy the whole place, and then and then leave it as it is and get their gold without any permit without any authorization get their gold and then leave these pits as death traps for people and sometimes they just they destroy the land in such a way that nothing nothing can grow nothing can grow um, um for for a very long time in those places so that is that is that is classified as galamse in ghana and so it became such a big problem that all most of the major water bodies in ghana are being destroyed are being muddied and are being contaminated with with uh, with with um, with chemicals, dangerous chemicals like cyanide and the rest. And so, Aremeya um, Anas, Anas Aremeya Anas, and his investigative journalism team did a piece on to to expose the people behind behind this um, this corrupt activity. The, the, and 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 when his piece came out, it was so shocking. It was so shocking. The the level at which this Galamse menace has risen. There are political leaders involved. There are chiefs involved. There are there are leaders in society who people look up to, who people listen to, who are directly or sometimes indirectly 
involved in this galamse menace and so it it this is out there this piece is out there the government knows about it the security agencies knows about it but who is acting zilch at the very core you realize you you'll notice that because it is um it is a uh, it, it it has some political elements in it. I, when I say that, I mean there are some politicians involved in this galamse menace. Then it gets, sweep, it gets swept under the carpet and we pretend as if the problem is not there. That is what happens most of the time. Not just not just galamse. Anas Arimeyan has conducted another investigative piece, brilliant one, brilliant one on judges. Judges who are willing to sell their conscience and sell and sell every single uh, uh, um, everything good about being a judge for for <laughs> for, for for a goat. <laughs> um, um, pe- people who, if 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 you're not if you're not a Ghanaian, you don't understand what goats mean to Ghanaians. A goat is a is an important. <laughs> It's an important source of meat, really, in Ghana. People love it. People love goat meat. And so these judges are willing to sell their conscience and put someone away for a very long time for a goat. Not for money, not for house, not for a car, for a goat. <laughs> that is how ridiculous it sounds. And so Anas Arimeya Anas had a piece, an investigative journalism piece, where judges were caught on camera taking bribes. Bribes in goats and plantains and yams and cassavas to, to, to give a judgment, to make a judgment go a certain way. I mean, if judges are taking bribes, what trust is there what 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 system do you think the Ghanaian society have? In the very the very um, system that is supposed to to maintain um, um, law that is supposed to make sure that the laws work that is supposed to judge when somebody stands in that box. Corruption has eaten has 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 eaten so far as it has it has engulfed all these important institutions: the legislature, the judiciary, the the. It, it is so sad. I mean, I'm. I don't think that, and this is my honest opinion. I don't think that uh, corruption only exists in this form in 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 ghana ghana's uh, rival nigeria is <laughs> also in the same soup i mean we 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 are sometimes confused for, for for each other some some people see ghanaians as nigerians and some people see nigerians as ghanaians and so everything that we do is quite similar corruption in nigeria is is as comparable to that that exists in ghana up until the recent year, people thought that Nigeria was more corrupt than Ghana, but I disagree. I think that they are both on the same level. They are both very, very corrupt. And so, um, at this point, I would, I would say that 
um, I have exhausted a lot on on the system. Um, I am not going to give any any strong conclusions other than to say that my experience in Ghana um, shows that the Ghanaian system is very corrupt. And if the Ghana is supposed to 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 be the gateway to Africa, and Ghana is supposed to rise to the challenge, and Ghana is supposed to become um, a, a, a a leader in Africa for other African countries to live up to Ghana, the way that Ghana wants to be seen, then Ghana must start looking at um, corruption. Ghana must start looking at how corruption has eaten it to into its own into every single fabric of 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 that special country ghana must start putting in place systems that will root out corruption that will say that corruption does not does shouldn't be a part of this is is people until Ghana does that, until the systems, until systems are put in place to check corruption, until people are punished for corruption, until corruption is is put on the same level as murder, until corruption is put on the same level as 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 um, treason and terrorism in Ghana, then I don't think that Ghana is 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 ready. Ghana is not ready to take up any leadership position in Africa. Ghana is not ready at all. The reason why people think that uh, Ghana has gotten to that level where it can be that leader is because Ghana sweeps its problems under the carpet. And I think that we need to start highlighting all, all of these problems. We need to start telling leadership that they cannot hide it anymore. We, we, we see it every single day. And they have a responsibility to the people who put them in, in those leadership positions to do better, to come up with good laws, to come up with good systems, to come up with, um, um, to, 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 to sweep out corruption. Other than that, we are only deceiving ourselves in Ghana. I mean, at this point, I'm going to, to say thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my rantings about Ghana. And I will do well to bring you other, 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 other topics that that will highlight um, 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 these problems in 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 other other parts of Africa, in other countries in Africa. Um, so thank you, thank you again for, for 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 listening to this episode, and I will catch you soon with another uh, another brilliant topic um, in um, in the second second episode. Join me again. My name is Sebastian, but you can always call me Seb. Thank you.